Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Monday, October 25th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, today I think that we are going to have a conversation. We are going to talk some things out. We are going to discuss the news of the world and relevant opinions in the light of facts. Drawing these facts and opinions and general content, no matter what corner of our vast and beautiful world they come from, and and treating these views with respect, treating them in good faith, hoping that along the way we will keep ourselves and our audience adequately informed. You know, Evan, I'm going to blow your mind. Go ahead. I No, I'm not. Yes, do it. There are no corners in the world. It's all a continuum. Um, yeah, I know. Big, big insights. This is why I'm here for the big insights. Making the um, big bucks. Yeah. But, you know, we realize it is all on a continuum. You know, there people can have different thoughts than us and still be valid. We are not on the ivory tower. Our positions aren't the only one that matters. We just hope to bring enough information to the debate to, you know, really make it seem like we can actually talk about it in good faith and informed, but adequately. So anyway, going forward, Evan. Yeah. What are we going to talk about today? Well, for starters, I think that we are going to talk about the new Brandy Carlisle album in these silent days. In These Silent Days, new Brandy Carlisle album. Uh, came out in the beginning of October, so, you know, we're, we're cutting edge here at Adequately Informed. We're only a couple weeks late. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brandy Carlisle has recently become one of my absolute favorite musicians. Um, on this podcast, I've spoken highly of her before. I purchased and read her memoir, Broken Horses, and so she put out a new album, and I, I want to talk about it a little bit. Um, so I, I think just sort of the the structure that I want to lay out here is uh, general thoughts on the album, maybe hi- discuss a couple of highlighted tracks, and then I, I have something else that I want to want to talk about that that surprised me as I was listening to this album, and and we'll see uh, we'll see if Joe likes these ideas or if it ends up me bouncing a tennis ball off the wall. But here we go. Um, so this was a pretty good album, I think. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you. Uh, our <laughs> our sound effects department uh, works overtime here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good album. I think that um, the most notable element of In These Silent Days is Brandy's voice. I mean, we know she's been a standout vocalist, and she has such a passion and a, a developing a strong control of that passion in her voice that I think really shines through in this album on a lot of tracks now i don't think that this is destined to be the thing that that breaks her out into the open she doesn't really have a mind for that pop sensibility for a pop crossover and i don't think there's anything on here that is going to pull people in like maybe the story or the joke had done in the past but it's still a solid album overall so i mean she was on snl last night she was on SNL last night. That's true. Um, Joe, what, what do you, I know this is not typically your genre of music, your mm. style. How, how did you respond to this overall slash Brandy Carlisle in general? I mean, it sounded it, it, it was a sonically nice sounding album. Um, and it was never like I was like, I don't like this. But again, it, it just since it wasn't some 
a, a genre of music I listen to a lot. I couldn't, I don't quite have the language to talk about it. Or, I mean, I don't really talk, have the language to talk about many albums, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, but from what I could glean, it was like, it felt like if I was more in tune with that genre of music, that there seemed to be a lot going on there. Hey, I'll take it. That that, that uh, you know, that's more <laughs> more charitable than I thought you'd be. So I, I appreciate that. Do you have any <laughs> any uh, tracks or anything that you want to to highlight? I, I mean, I don't expect you to, but if you do, I want want you to I, have the opportunity. I to. do not. All right. Um, yeah. But so I, I tried to give about... it a closer listen than other times. So good, good. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so here, here are my three favorite songs on the album. And the first one was You and Me on the Rock, which is sort of this folk country ballad about what's really important in life. And, and reading Brandy's memoir, you can tell that this is something that's been on her mind. She is trying to take more time for her growing family. And for her, that actually includes like an extended family. The uh, Phil and Tim Hanseroth have been in her band with her ever since she was a teenager. And they all sort of live on this big compound out in Washington where all their families live. And, I feel like that that song is kind of what it's about. It's about saying, you know, we don't need all of these things from the outside world. We we just have to have each other. And I, I thought it was really beautiful. I think that was probably the best song on the album. I also want to point out that uh, Brandy Carlisle has recently become a very big um, Joni Mitchell fan. And I think you really hear that Joni Mitchell type influence on this track specifically. I think that sort of the the way that the strings and the vocals are arranged definitely sounds like something that could have come out on a Joni Mitchell record in the 1970s. So I thought that was cool. And I thought that she she used those influences well. So the next song that I want to highlight is uh, Letter to the Past, which is is more of a down-tempo piano ballad, but but the lyrics are, again, very positive. They're, they're designed to be uplifting and encouraging, trying to, you know, lift up a, a past partner or friend. It's, it's, it's a little bit vague, likely, intentionally. Um... And this, this was probably the closest I felt sonically to something that sounded like the joke. It had that very um, ornate, almost Baroque arrangement, just without the strings. There there were no strings prominently featured on this song as there were on the joke. And so um, it, it, it was, again, more somber. And I don't know if it's a song that I would want to listen to over and over again on repeat. But I, I still think that artistically it had a lot of merit. So... I enjoyed that one. And then um, the last one is something that I, I think that um, you, you might dig at least thematically, Joe. Um, mm. That was one of the, the the final tracks on the album, Sinners, Saints, and Fools. It's, it's more of this guitar rock opus that's all about decrying religious hypocrisy. So basically the lyrics tell this story of a man who wants to follow the rules quote-unquote rules as strictly into the letter as possible and so when 
immigrants and refugees come to the country. He he speaks out against them and says they, they didn't come here legally. They didn't follow the rules and we should turn them away. And so then kind of the conclusion of the song, the final verse is the man dies and goes to heaven. And when he gets there, he is turned away because he's they, the, the <laughs> St. Peter tells him the same thing that he told the immigrants. You know, you didn't follow the rules and we don't want you here. Um, so I thought that was... A, a very interesting interesting take on religion and morality which again is is another common theme that is clearly a, a preoccupation of of brandy in her life and in her work um because she's sort of this hippie west coast lesbian folk rock artist and yet she does maintain a deeply rooted faith and she courageously is able to separate sort of the dogma and hatred that's associated with certain religious sects from the underlying messages of love and acceptance within the Christian scripture. And so it, it was very nice for me as someone who who knows a little bit about her past and about her views to, to see that kind of translate and work its way into the music so that, you know, anyone who is in a similar scenario can have this sort of really beautiful representation of this battle between what are we told that religion means and what does it actually mean? And through this yeah. one specific story, we get a nice little... Uh, a, a nice little parable, I guess, is the best way to put it, of the man who who rejected those on earth and then was rejected in heaven. Yeah, I mean, shit. I that's a that's a message I believe a lot of people can resonate with. I mean, at least a lot of people I know who grew up religious um, in Christian faiths. You know, there was you know, years of teaching us what our faith was about. And then we become adults and then look at all the other people in the faith as like, Oh, so we're not broadly applying this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Nope. So, and, so and, you mean it's real, we're really just applying it to other people in our faith. Oh, okay. Um, oh, good. <laughs> or other white people who are in our faith. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, uh, interesting take you know does not make you uh very much believe in the morality of religious people if they end up um you know professing faith and then um not broadly applying it so well there's yeah. a really great story that brandy tells in her memoir broken horses about when she was a teenager she already like pretty much knew that she was queer and that you know, that was not in line with the teachings of her evangelical church. And she but but nonetheless, she still attended church and was still interested in all that. And she was preparing. I can't remember if it was for a communion or, or a baptismal ritual, um, but but I, let's say it's a baptism. And she had done all of her meetings with the pastor and she was ready to get baptized. And then on the day of her baptism, before she could go out there, the, the pastor called her into the back of the church and said, hey, are, are you ready to renounce your lesbian lifestyle? <laughs> and she was like, what what are you talking about? That's who I, I you know, I, I can't just say I'm going to change who I am. And, you know, the pastor had known her and had gone through all of this with her 
And then at the very last minute, sprung it on her like, I'm not going to baptize you unless you forever swear off being a lesbian. And so she was literally turned away from the church. They said, we will not baptize you. And even though all of her family was already at the church, she had to leave the church in shame. And so I think it's right. Yeah. So I (laughs) think it's really remarkable. Could could you ramp up the stakes? Like, could you humiliate anyone at a higher level than that? It would be hard to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and, and it's just so crazy because like, she wants to be part of the church. You know, she's going to get baptized. Like, you know, I, I don't know if I would be baptized if I had to arrange it for myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Catholics and Episcopals, we took care of that as babies. We're good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, <laughs> if you don't do it within like three months, people start asking, hey, yo, you're leaving your kid up to eternal damnation. What's up here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think it's remarkable that Brandy still has still has it in her heart to explore the broader context of faith and what it really means at its roots instead of just the the angriest elements of it and so i I think that because you can you can feel all of that history and all of that personality shaping the story i think that is a another standout track as well um so yeah joe did you have any more thoughts on the album sort of musically or sonically before i before i spin off into wild directions here um i don't know it sounded nice it was pleasant it was hey i i like that that's a good take yeah all right i'm glad i got the good i only have good takes um it (laughs) it reminds me of the letterboxd review i wrote for dune i wrote i thought dune was good yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah now now let's spin out yeah so um, I, I don't listen to as much music as I once did, but when I was younger, I, one of my favorite things to do would be to get a new CD and then just kind of pop it into my CD player and just listen to the album. And I know a lot of people have this experience. You just kind of put on a CD or, you know, if you, if you're really that type of guy, you put on a record, um, vinyl and, and you just sort of take that as an experience to let the artist build a world and invite you inside done only with sound. But I, you know, I'm not as big into music anymore. I wasn't going to go buy this album. I just like everyone, I just wanted to stream it on Spotify. And so I pull it up on Spotify and I hit play and I listen to a few songs. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this world that that Brandy Carlisle is building for me sonically. And then all of a sudden I am ripped away by an advertisement. I I wanted to see kind of how universal that type of experience would be. And uh, in my research, I found out that like myself, 56% of Spotify users do not spring for the premium package and therefore are subjected to ads. Now, a lot of times this might not matter if you're just listening to a playlist or or listening to a couple songs here and there. But I think that this experience of music interrupted with ads is detrimental to the experience and appreciation of the album format. And I think that 
it, it's changing the way that we experience long form musical pieces and maybe not for the better. Joe, what are you thinking about this? I mean, I, I think the, that it does change the album listening <laughs> experience is kind of the point. Um, it's, it's a hook to get you to either pay for premium or, you know, pay for the product in some way by listening to ads. So I don't know. I, I, I mean, yeah, it, it, it does change things, but I yeah. don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, from a business standpoint, um, you know, the music, the business of music standpoint. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking of it more as like an artistic standpoint. So, you know, the music industry is going to do what it's going to do. Um, I really don't have any control over that. But I'm thinking about, you know, would would people have have responded so well to sort of the sonic innovations of Sgt. Pepper's in the 1960s if like right after you listen to Fixing a Hole, it's like, and by the way, you have to buy a rental car from Avis, you know, like what? What like mm-hmm. like I, I just feel like um there's there's sort of this delineation, right, between things that are structurally built to contain ads and those that aren't. Like the differentiation between TV and movies. Part of the television format is act breaks and explicitly timed edits in the show, which are built into the programming to allow for commercials to play versus a film um, is just sort of one long story. And I hate watching movies on TV. I can't do it. I cannot handle that story that was not intended to be broken up, being constantly sliced and diced and interrupted with things that are absolutely irrelevant to the plot of the film. That's just not, not what it's supposed to be. And so I guess where I'm getting this disconnect here, Joe, is that the the album format has always been something that has been constructed and edited more like a film to be one continuous artistic expression that you enjoy at the author's leisure not necessarily your own and certainly not the leisure of the advertising executives at Spotify and so i feel like there's just this this psychic disconnect for me when I'm seeing that type of format broken up in this way. And you're right, you know, I could buy the CD and I could pay for Spotify premium. But like I said, a lot of people don't. Album sales are way down. We all know that. 56% of Spotify users, as I mentioned, also have to contend with ads. So well, yes, it's true that any one individual could pay to circumvent that ad experience. Clearly, we as a society are moving more towards an ad-supported album listening experience. And I feel as though that is going to make people take music less seriously, and it also may lessen our enjoyment of a full, cohesive album. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because... Um... Music is actually one of the realms of media where um, you have almost wholly been able to retain the option to pay for an experience without ads. Um, You know, you can buy the CD or whatever. You can buy an album. You know, you can buy it on iTunes still, even though there's Apple Music. Or you can buy a premium uh, 
you know, a premium streaming option, uh, which I do. I pay for Spotify premium. Um, you know, even though I don't listen to a ton of music, it's still just nice to be able to choose, you know, the playlist and, you know, all that kind of stuff and, you know, be able to get a specific song and not have to listen, you know, all sorts of stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, there, this, this is a debate that goes into so many different spaces. Like, I don't think any, you know, one medium, um, is like ripe for ads or not. It's just whether we're used to it or not. Um, you know, there's tell, you know, I would think, uh, people who of who watch British television in Britain would think that um, you know a good amount of television is no place for ads either because they don't have ads on their um, you know their state-run television networks um, so but you know there's a the this is also a debate that comes up on the internet a lot because you know we choose on most things on the internet to support things by ads instead of directly paying for it and so you end up getting weird incentives and you know just this kind of disconnect so um, you know you'll have this news website or you know it happens a lot where you know maybe you could I mean they could have set up a model where you pay just a little bit for it a month but you know it's there's no ads but since it's come to the expectation that everything's free, then they just bombard you with ads because that's how they have to pay for it. So it's just it's it's just that this model that has happened in other mediums is now in the music medium. And, so. and like I said, and you're right, there's there's sort of an expectation component that comes with it. And I, I think also, though, we have to take into consideration the expectation of the artist. I know there's sort of like this, this uh, you know, kind of postmodern belief, oh, you know, what the artist intended didn't matter, da 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 da, da. But, but it does kind of, in you know, it very much influences the art that we make and the art that we consume. And so um, if an artist didn't intend to or if the artist wasn't expecting their work to be suffused with advertisements interrupting the flow of whatever experience they were trying to create then adding advertisements to that experience is unlikely to enhance the end product so maybe this is just a call um for consumers who who want to be conscious and care about this type of thing to be willing to pony up the extra dough so that we don't have to support art through advertising because it's just sort of a a spiritually uncomfortable marriage to me yeah and if you buy the album or get the premium streaming streaming apps they uh they get paid the artists get paid more than they get from streams with advertising on it yeah so um it's it's a feedback loop that you you kind of get to decide i mean the the whole thing with the internet revolution and these advertising models is that it has now like just opened the playing field so wide that anybody can consume any piece of media, but it's your 
choice of how much you pay or how much um, badgering you get with ads. <laughs> so yeah. it's a trade-off. Yeah. So those were my thoughts. Um, I, I liked the album. I love Brandy Carlisle. I just wish that there weren't so many damn ads on when I was <laughs> listening to Spotify. Too many damn ads. <laughs> or not enough. No, too many. No, I think either, they either way, there's a nice not the right Ovaltine amount. Ad in there, yeah. Ooh, I used to drink Ovaltine every morning, man. Yeah, I used to drink Instant Carnation breakfast, which was like supposedly more healthy Ovaltine. <laughs> I remember that. I've I've had some Carnation in my day. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, Ovaltine. Well, that's just chocolate milk. But breakfast, ooh. It has but vitamins now and minerals in it. There's protein in here. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big ups. All right, Joe. What else are we talking about today? All right. So we're, we're going to, I mean, we've kind of talked about it at length before, but um, I think it's time to uh, revisit inflation a little bit. Um, because yes. it has been a hot topic, hot, hot, hot topic. Um, because it's my favorite store at the mall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Inflation is a Spencer's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, I liked it. Yeah. So, um, in the last, uh, earlier this month, uh, the, the government released its inflation numbers and, it's looking like inflation is still relatively high compared to the norm. Um, and just this past weekend, uh, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, founder and CEO of Twitter, uh, tweeted out that um, hyperinflation is coming and it's going to change everything. Um, so just spoiler alert, <laughs> I do not <laughs> think that's the case. But... Um, yeah, we have been seeing inflation keeping up. It is no longer just in these few fields where it was like for a while it was just in like used cars and new cars and really devices with uh, semiconductors in it. That was like the big inflation zone. That's where inflation was happening at. But now it started to spread out out a little bit more it's started you know it's in transportation costs it's and i mean really i the big thing is that people are doing more things which has caused more demand to transport things which has caused demand for oil to go up and oil producers haven't ramped up because their business cratered during the coronavirus so they've been hesitant to start up new production of oil and gas. And basically, when oil and gas prices go up, the prices of a whole heck of a lot of things go up. Yeah, so, I want to hit I want to hit the listeners with some fast facts that I found out about inflation for the month of September. Prices were up five point four percent year over year from last September. This continues a six month trend now of increasing inflation. This was said to be a short-term thing, but six months clearly is not super short-term. Also, the inflation We've entered is... the medium turn. 
Yeah. <laughs> the the somewhat used economic length of time that nobody really knows how long it is. It's however long Joe says it is. And, exactly. and there we go. <laughs> also, the inflation is not just rising year over year, which you would expect from last year being the COVID year and prices being down. But inflation has also risen 0.4% just month over month. So we are experiencing inflation pretty rapidly even within the year um, and these are as joe has said spreading to multiple different industries food shelter and gasoline prices are all rising now i don't want to be this big inflation fear monger but those are some troubling indicators that i found doing my own research yeah well and this gets back to things we talk about all the time with things in the united states is that most of the inflation in these um, markets or, you know, specific products, um, well, food, food is kind of exempt from this, but like between like oil and housing, it's just that there isn't enough supply. And um, we just, I mean, in the short term, you know, Oil politics are weird, like because um, they directly affect like almost all Americans in just their daily transportation, because we have set up the entire country that you basically need a car to um, be able to be a functioning member of society. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Watch for this in my upcoming book in 10 years, America, the expensive. Um <laughs> And so we make everybody have this car. And then so when oil prices or gas prices go up, then that's putting the squeeze on every single individual American. Whereas if we had a world where, I don't know, it was more like, uh, you know, the Netherlands where everybody like rode their bike and took public transit, you know, rising gas prices wouldn't as affect everybody as much. But then it's affecting food prices. But but then also burning more gas means that uh, that worsens the effects of climate change. So like being a Democratic president and, you know, administration, they don't they don't have a ton of control over, um, you know, what gas prices are. But one thing that could be possible is like trying, you know, to. You know, it's like a balancing act between easing politics and polluting more. And it's like if they opened up more drilling to happen in the short term to help keep Democrats in Congress, that would end up being a net good for <laughs> climate change. But but anyway, that's getting away from inflation. Um, it's just the fact that, you know, we're you know, our dollars are not being able to buy as much. And specifically mm -hmm. with housing, I mean, that's just another thing. Like, there is just not enough housing out there because we have a society made it very, very hard to build um, houses or, you know, homes for people that aren't just single family houses. And um, so we have not been able to meet the demand. And I mean, there's not even the demand or meeting the demand for single family houses out there in a lot of you know jurisdictions. So it's it's uh it's tough and you know just um 
there is still a question of how long this inflation may last um, because there's kind of two parts of inflation. One, there's the stuff that's already happening. And then two, there's the expectations of inflation. So the reason why the expectations of inflation matter is because if you expect that in like a year from now, the money that you have saved is not going to be worth as much, then you're going to want to go out and try and spend that money as soon as possible because it's still worth something. So one reason why, um, you know, the the inflation hasn't gotten out of control yet is because it has still been the belief that inflation will go back down and the value of people's money will still retain enough value and that they don't need to go and spend it right now. But a lot of people are spending it right now. Demand from for goods um, from before, you know, compared to before the pandemic is like something like 10 or 15% above what it what had been before the pandemic. So it's not just that we're reopening and there are these, you know, kind of shifts and and issues coming along with trying to reopen. It's also that people are buying a whole lot more shit than they were before. Um, and they're not getting as many services, which is kind of a soft spot where people can spend money and it's not as inflationary because it's a lot easier to provide more services um for you know it, it's easier to scale those up than it is for producing actual things yeah think so. about a barber who has a barber shop and maybe only half of his appointments in a day are booked he could get double the amount of clients and still not really have to raise his prices at all versus you know if there are a finite number of widgets and now twice as many people want to buy them that will cause the price to go up yeah and is that, and is that a good economics analogy yeah, joe yeah, yeah. i came I up mean, with it by myself but, but you see it's <laughs> crazy because for so long our economy was understimulated um, I mean, that was the critique from after the Great Recession. But I mean, even if you go back like um, since like the dot com bust in the early 2000s, the the economy in the United States has been a little understimulated. Um, the gre the wheels aren't as greased. I mean, basically, the way you want to think about it is, you know, let's say our economy just in general, our industrial capacity is able to make, you know, a hundred thousand sports cars or something like that along those lines. It's good. It's best for the economy when you make a hundred thousand sports car because you want to make the most of what you can make. If you're making only 50,000 sports cars, then you're leaving capacity on the table that could be better utilized. But then once you go the other direction, once you start having to try and make 110,000 sports cars, when you only really have the resources to make 100,000, that's when you start inflation. Inflation really starts to come about when 
um, you start having to try and fulfill a greater demand than you have the production capacity to fulfill. And so we're kind of seeing that now um, across several places. The great shipping backup, supply chain backup is also affecting things. So it's just kind of uh, this this reopen is having a tough time. And we're definitely having a unique set of problems compared to other parts of the world because the United States government did so much. Um, there's actually a little bit of a chance that our, well, there is a chance that our economy is a little overstimulated right now, um, which is causing these higher prices. Now, I'm not advocating that we shouldn't have done whatever round of stimulus or, you know, what have you, but we're, we're dealing with a set of consequences that is different from other parts of the world where their economies are still depressed. So. Yeah, and, and it's interesting the way that the Federal Reserve is responding to this in that they don't really seem concerned. And again, I'm not Mr. Inflation Fearmonger. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't be concerned, but it does seem like the the Fed has, in its public statements and in its actions, continued to express that their goal is economic stimulation and economic recovery. So currently, the Federal Reserve is employing an easy money strategy. That means low interest rates, people are being able to borrow money pretty darn cheaply, and so that is done to stimulate economic activity. But as uh, Mr. Skofsma would say, we're steering between the Scylla and Charybdis of stagnation and inflation and an easy money policy does sort of tilt the rudder towards that inflation side. Yeah. And this may end up being a um, case where we're running into new territory and we're using the playbook of the last battle to try and fight this. So what, you know, Basically, what all the Federal Reserve people and parts of the Democratic administration are, you know, they look back on after the Great Recession and just the economic issues that came from that, where, um, you know, the economy was understimulated and then the Federal Reserve did not give enough assurances that uh, interest rates were going to be remain low um, in order to help you know, encourage investments because um, investor, you know, people who take out large debt to do projects or investments, if there is a fear that interest rates may go up in the near future or within the lifetime of their project, then they're going to be a little bit more hesitant to do it. But if they are insured that interest rates are going to stay low, then they are more likely to take on that investment. So fast forward to here, we're trying to assert those lessons that we learned. You know, over the last decade, inflation never met its targets. Like maybe twice, you know, the Fed has a 2% inflation target that it tries to hit, but it only hit it or exceeded it like, like a few months out of the last decade, which is like 120 months so it was not hitting its targets um, for inflation. So the thought is, is that 
you know, maybe there will be a little bit inflation now, but we haven't had a whole lot of inflation in the past. So this could be manageable as long as it's temporary within the context of like a year or two. So it's um, we're trying to not come out of this recession having a still understimulated like less than full employment economy but you know we're just running into a different set of circumstances here than at what it was in 2009 so yeah you know it, it's just interesting to see which how how things will go yeah yeah for sure so i know full employment has been something that we've talked about on here before it's been an interest of yours how are we doing on that are we close are we like how's that looking well, it's an interesting thing because, oh my God, like this, this has been something that everybody's been talking about, like trying to figure out where we are at with employment, because as we discussed, um, I'm pretty sure in a previous week, um, you know, the September jobs report came out or, you know, at the beginning of October. And so at, you know, the beginning of September, all the federal unemployment, you know, enhanced benefits cut off. Um, they cut those benefits off. And there were about 8 million people receiving those enhanced benefits. And the thought was that once cutting off those benefits, a whole bunch of people would, you know, have, you know, finally be forced to go get a job. And, um, you know, 8 million people had their benefits cut off. And the September jobs report reported about 185,000 jobs <laughs> added to the economy. So we're not we're not at the same level as before. I mean, our unemployment is at like five percent or something like that, like five point two, which historically isn't too bad. But it's also come at the heels of a lot of people exiting the workforce, like not having a job or looking for a job. So we've seen a lot of people just kind of exit the economy. Yeah, because that's important to note is that there's a difference between the unemployment rate and the jobless rate. The jobless rate is just the number of people in a society who don't have a job. And that's really not frequently reported on. What's reported on is the unemployment rate, which is the ratio of people who are looking for a job who cannot find a job. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's so if you weird... have an economy that's so bad that people give up hope and stop looking for a job, the unemployment rate goes down right? because people have given up. And so it seems like things are going better when really they might not be. It's, it's tricky. It's, it's all yeah. a complicated dance. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this was one thing that was talked a lot about after the Great Recession was that, I mean, especially with a lot of blue collar jobs, there was a, a big cohort of um, middle aged men who had lost their jobs, who just like dropped out of the workforce for a while because their job prospects were like bad. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they didn't want to take something. And there was actually an increase in disability claims. Um, basically, people searching out whatever means that they could to support their family while economic times were tough. Um, so, 
Yeah, we're 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 in a weird space. And and I also got to say I don't think enough attention is paid to how 700,000 people have died from the coronavirus in this country. Yeah. And and excess deaths are even higher than that yeah. over the same period of time. So I can't help but wonder if the solution isn't more in that realm. Like having people die is a huge drag on an economy. Like it's it's pretty morbid to think about it like that. But economists will tell you having people die is very bad for an economy. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially all of those people you know, again, the the most important thing here, and we're not, no one is ever claiming anything differently. The most important thing here is the tragic loss of, of, of human souls being extinguished from the planet. But from an economic perspective, these are people who have economic value that they generate for their communities and for the country. They're consumers who buy things and spend money and stimulate further economic activity. And in one year, having 700,000 of them vanish from the economic roles is naturally going to create a negative economic effect. Right. And especially like, you know, if you, let's say um, someone dies of COVID and they're a parent, uh, and, you know, let's say, you know, a three or four person family you know two parents two kids um one parent dies then um that parent left is left to take care of those two kids and has to completely change their economic lives uh versus before you know maybe i mean there are just so many different iterations of how things could have worked out. But, you know, maybe before it was that, you know, before the one parent died and before the pandemic, um, both the parents worked and thanks to their dual incomes, they were able to uh, secure childcare and, you know, to be able to work those two jobs and care for their kids as well. But with one parent gone, um, the other parent does not make up enough money to, um, you know, pay for childcare. So they actually have to like either change jobs or just take care of their children themselves. Mm-hmm. So like the effect of one person dying can take two people out of the workforce, um, in, in that possibility, Um, I mean, and then again, like I said, there are so many different possibilities, but I think people out in the, well, not the Twitter discourse, but like the cable news for show political discourse, there (laughs) is gotta love them. Yeah. There is just so much more emphasis paid to the people receiving unemployment benefits and not enough emphasis on how we've lost so many people and how all the, you know, a fair, I'm going to guess a fair number of those people who passed away from COVID um, were still in working ages. I mean, it hit the older elderly pretty hard, but that doesn't mean that they were the only people who passed away. So there are a lot of people who passed away who were in the labor force who are, you know, no longer part of it because they're, they've passed. 
And then there's the ramifications of those people passing and just also the changes to society, like with school being irregular and having to deal with childcare and all this stuff. And oh boy, you want to talk about schools? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just like the changing jobscape of, you know, what, what jobs are able to keep going and which ones are coming back. And I mean, like if there's a bunch of people, I mean, it just seems like we now have a bunch of jobs available, but there's just a mismatch between um, the people who don't have jobs and the jobs that are available right mm -hmm. now. Big time. Um, because it, it's not like all the places where jobs are available, like they just fired a whole bunch of people at the beginning of the pandemic and then they're just getting back to it now. Like these are ex extra jobs, you know, that people may not have been part of or they didn't want to go back to. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, I think we're really starting to see a, some labor movement uh, happening. You know, it tends to happen when in times of um, labor shortages, which is we're we're pretty much in a time of labor shortage right now. Um, so it will be interesting to see going forward how, how all this happens and if inflation will keep going up or not. I mean, yeah. at least in the next few months, I see it continuing to go up at least through Christmas. So yeah, who knows, man. Hey man, it'll, it'll make my student loan debt relatively less valuable yeah so i'll say okay I'll, yeah. I'll live <laughs> yeah that's uh you know that's that's been one of the critiques of why maybe um we've kept such low inflation over the last decade um is that you know it's the corrupt money elites get into the ears of the policymakers, and low inflation is good for lenders and high inflation is good for borrowers. So, <laughs> so yeah, who knows? Maybe the student debt uh, debates wouldn't be so crazy if we had had a bunch of inflation over the last decade. Well, and I mean, yeah, the temperature would necessarily be turned down because, you know, the, the, the real value of, of the debt would be lessened. And, you know, <laughs> people who, who have X amount of debt not getting eaten away by inflation it becomes more urgent yeah yep yep and then there's also the possibility i i just can't help but wonder is that um right now student loans are scheduled to restart payment after like january 31st or something and I can't help but wonder if that will be something that may fight inflation um, or rising inflation. It'll, well, because sure. It'll, if, if money that is used currently going to um, money that is chasing different goods, goods yeah. becomes sucked into paying down debts, then yeah, their inflation will sort of necessarily go down yeah. for that reason now is it the lever that i want to use or you know really you know want <laughs> to no. use to fight yeah. inflation no but i'm pretty sure it'll have some sort of effect 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, they say, they talk about how widely, you know, the huge group of people who have student loans. So it's, it affects a lot of people. Um, so we'll, we'll just see, um, hope you, everybody is able to still buy their milk, um, <laughs> that they need. My grandma, uh, went to me exasperated at how much milk costs, but I don't, Dude, milk is costing a lot these days. She I've not wrong. been buying milk. So I, I guess I don't know how, how much is a gallon going for like three bucks? Yeah, it's pretty close to three bucks. I remember, I'll never forget this, the cheapest milk that I ever bought was when I was when we were living in Champaign. The milk was like 60 cents a gallon. It was crazy. Yep. I yep. loved it. Yeah, it's funny how markets change. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think people just don't appreciate that too much ever. I mean... I mean, I guess most people don't appreciate most economic <laughs> changes, but like no, most people just don't appreciate most things, you know, and yeah. that's not a bad thing. That's just human existence. You don't care but, about most of the things. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of people are up in arms about gas prices. I mean, if we had a roaring economy back with Donald Trump, then gas prices would also still be high. Like, yeah, <laughs> um, there is not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Uh, gas prices are very much supply and demand. I mean, um, it's such a competitive market that there is not a whole lot of collusion around prices. You know, everyone's trying to cut eat cut each other and you know have the lowest price to get the most people there so it's um yeah it's it's not joe biden doing anything wrong that is like making gas prices go up um are you sure about that because thanks joe biden yeah Oh, yeah. He took the lever that's on his desk that says gas prices and he moved it from the low gear into the high gear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All uh, all just because George Soros asked him to. Yeah. Yeah. Because George Soros is enacting the China conspiracy that global warming. Is. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. inflation money's being able to buy a little less, maybe temporary, maybe not. We'll see. You know, that's 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 the best we got. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Evan, do you have anything else to add on this episode? No, that's it for me. Yeah, I think that uh, brings us to a close. Um, a little announcement here. Um, going forward, adequately informed is going to move to an every other week format. Um, this will be a little bit better fit for Evan and I, and hopefully this will allow us to bring you higher quality episodes, um, with the lesser frequency so we can do more research and better construct our conversations. So We'll, uh, we'll see how that goes, but just as a warning. But anyway, we thank you for listening today. Um, and we like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.